BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Chief Justice Tony Cantil Sakauwe will join the nonprofit think tank, the Public Policy Institute of California, the moment she steps down as head of the state's judicial branch in January, saying the role will be very different, but that her skills and experiences have prepared her well. We'll talk with Cantil Sakauwe about those experiences, deciding consequential cases, angering the Trump administration over her criticism of immigration actions in courthouses, and why she left the Republican Party in 2018. What do you want to ask California's Chief Justice? Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Chief Justice of California, Tani Cantil Sakauwe, is stepping down in January after serving a 12-year term on the state's high court. Nominated by former Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, her tenure began by dealing with the impacts of the Great Recession on our courts. And it ends with the impact of the pandemic. In that time, Cantil Sakauwe has had to address budget crises, court backlogs, and has pushed for bail reform. She joins us now to reflect on her time on the bench and the future of the courts. Welcome to Forum, Chief Justice Cantil Sakauwe. Thank you. What a pleasure it is. Thank you for your interest. Well, let me begin by congratulating you on the announcement that come January, You'll be president and CEO of the Public Policy Institute of California. Why is moving there the right next chapter for you? Thank you, Mina. I am thrilled for this dream job, um, second dream job I think I've, I've ever had. And the reason I feel it's the right move for me is that one of my, one of my interests has always been public policy and California leads the country, if not the world, in public policy based on our diversity and our our cutting edge thinkers in Silicon Valley and our legislature and our governor. So to be able to be part of and to lead an organization that engages in independent, nonpartisan, as you know, fact-based policy to amplify it, clarify it, perhaps guide it, uh, is truly, I think, when you think of the work that judicial officers do, when we engage in fact-based application of law that is part of some policy, uh, it's really a parallel move for me. And I'm thrilled to be able to be asked to do it. And I'm excited beyond words to work for PPIC. And in addition to administering or fact-based application of the law, as you say, 
as chief justice, the scope of your role is massive. I I was looking at it in preparation for our conversation today. You're also chair of the California Judicial Council, responsible for allocating a multi-billion dollar budget for what is the largest judicial system in the country. So could you remind our listeners of just the scope, what you have had to oversee as Chief Justice and the role that you've played with our lawmakers? I appreciate that question. Well, most people uh, may not realize, but the California judiciary is the largest law trained judiciary in the United States, again, if not the world. And we are also the most diverse judiciary anywhere that you can find. Uh, We also are double the size of the federal judiciary. And 90% of law that governs people's lives are made at the state court level because of our multifaceted areas of legal jurisprudence. We cover far more subjects than the uh, federal bench. And California is uh, one of, is the largest, but also I want to say the most, uh, because of our bar association, 225,000 lawyers who make up and become judges in California are diverse. And we are able to bring, I think, new ideas, new policies, We lead in policies, we lead in collaborative courts, in restorative justice, in diversity initiatives, in language access. We tackle subject matters that question whether or not we're doing the right thing in the judiciary. We we work with our two branches of government, uh, the legislature and the executive branch. And as the Chief Justice of California, I'm more than just the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I I run the business side and the administrative side of this judiciary, but I do it with incredibly dedicated professionals, public servants who could go out anywhere in public sector and be at the height of their careers and professions, but who choose, who choose justice and who choose to serve in many, many ways in the judiciary. I do none of this alone. I'm always a team of either peer lawyers or lawyer administrators, policy wonks, professionals, and subject matter experts. That's how I think we've succeeded, is we are a big voice and a big table. One of the things I remember is when you talk about the business side of the courts, I remember you really bringing to light the impact of severe budget cuts on the court following the Great Recession, that that you were closing courtrooms, losing staff, having to do furloughs, reducing hours, and so on. And And I know that the judiciary is on better financial footing now, correct? Or am I I making an assumption here? No, you are absolutely correct about where we are now and where we were. Uh, let, Let me say too, the judicial branch is unable to control our caseload. <laughs> we we take all comers. We they come in the door with grievances and complaints. And I'll just take the example of the Great Recession. During the Great Recession, we had we were cutting and closing courtrooms and court hours and services across the board. Um, I was an appellate justice at the beginning of the Great Recession. Many of us went without pay. That was a choice we took in order to continue to work for without pay and to provide service. Many retired judges volunteered their time without pay to continue to meet the growing need. Because in crisis, as we saw with COVID, but also as we saw with the Great Recession, people's lives are in are in turmoil. That's the greatest time for a wage theft, 
the greatest time for fraud, discrimination, the greatest time of tension and, and trouble in families and with dependents, both young and old, the courts in crisis need to be open more than ever because that's when our caseload swells. And so we were able to, over the years, as California financially recovered, we were able to, with the help of the attorneys as our advocates in California, go to the legislature and the governor and seek additional funding, sustainable funding that goes directly to services to people in need in the court system. Well, I do want to fast forward to how the court system had to adjust during the pandemic, uh, remote appearances and so on. Can you talk about what administering justice needed to become in the last two and a half years? Oh, yes. During the pandemic in March of 2020, we found ourselves, like everyone, um, at the cutting edge in a, a book of no pages, A uh, as we said, we're, we're, we're driving the bullet train as we're throwing out the tracks in front of us and we cannot move fast enough. But we also had incredible concerns about the due process, efficient administration of justice and people in custody. And as you know, at that time, the legislature went out of session. So it was only the executive branch and the judicial branch and many, many stakeholders, the legal aid groups, the lawyer groups, they were going to Governor Newsom and he had his hands full. That man was working seven days a week and amazing hours. I don't know that he rested. And so he, at that time, early on, did something unprecedented, as you may know. He signed an executive order that gave uh, to myself as chair of the Judicial Council and the Judicial Council the power to suspend statute in order to protect the health and safety of our court users and staff. And we, and I promised him that we would use this unprecedented power to judiciously. And so all of the interests that were in the Capitol now came to the Judicial Council, which is our, our board of directors of the judicial branch. And it's a constitutional body. And we worked with our stakeholders. We, we found it what they needed. We asked them to work together, and we were able to go and get up to speed remote, um, maybe not uniformly, but we were up and remote almost immediately. Um, the Supreme Court, we didn't miss a beat. We went to oral argument remotely in April. Our lawyers, our staff went remote immediately. Again, it wasn't smooth, but everyone was rowing in the same direction, trying to get up to speed so that lawyers and, and so that they could be there for their clients and people without lawyers still had access and still had services and that we didn't leave anyone behind. And the Judicial Council, we came up with emergency rules that had never been promulgated anywhere in the United States, including one that at that time, as you may know, we suspended all evictions in California in the court system. We closed those courts, we narrowed its scope. And the reason we did so is as a judicial council, we decided, gee, there are shelter in place orders there. We don't know the extent or reach of this uh, contagion. Is it, what is it? Is it killing people? We can't turn people out on the streets. Everyone has a reason. People's lives are falling apart now. Jobs are closing. We don't know why they're being evicted. And so we, as you know, declared a moratorium on evictions in California in the courts. That was a pretty unprecedented step, but I have to say we also needed to shrink our footprint of people in the courts. We needed to have fewer people come to court, more people 
go online. And so we took a number of measures, including putting criminal and civil cases where we could online, suspending jury trials because jurors didn't want to come in and we couldn't in good conscience bring them in, not knowing what this contagion could do to them and their family. So it's a time of great strife. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine it has created pandemic-related backlogs, though, and I'm wondering yes. how you're trying to reduce those in the civil and criminal system. Well, the courts have really reached out. There's 58 trial courts, one per county in California, and six appellate courts, and they've all worked locally. Their local presiding judges of your county is a hero. And he or she has reached out to work with all of the stakeholders, the people who use the court. And many, many, many courts, most courts, in fact, are dealing with their backlog and finding ways to resolve matters. I uh, ordered that retired judges be made available on top of whatever complement of judges are already assigned to a court, say Yolo County or San Diego, to use the services of retired judges so that they can help you attract, uh, reduce your caseload, both on civil side and criminal side. Uh, the governor's office and the legislature provided one-time money for us to reduce backload on criminal cases, which then makes room for civil cases. Uh, we have looked for efficiencies that we all agreed to and learned during the pandemic, and we're still using them, and the legislature has approved them, and the governor has signed those into law. So we've, we're trying in every way to get people served and to provide what they need, be it a courtroom or a hearing or a trial. Hmm. We're talking with Chief Justice of California, Tani Cantil Saka'uwe, who will step down January 1st. And you, our listeners, are invited to join our conversation. What are your questions for the Chief Justice? Or maybe you have questions about our court system, how it works, or have had an interaction with the court system that you want to tell us about you can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. More Forum after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Some people continue to have school anxiety dreams years after graduating, showing up late for class, missing a final exam. We'll talk with dream and sleep experts about why these and other stress dreams won't go away. 
And you can tell us before the show, what's your recurring stress dream? You can leave a voicemail at 415-553-3300. This hour, we're talking with California Chief Justice Tani Cantil Saka'uwe. Praised for both her legal acumen and her commitment to equal justice during her 12-year term, Kentiel Sakawe will step down as Chief Justice come January. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions for Kentiel Sakawe or your questions about the court system or interactions you've had with California's very large judiciary system. 866-733-6786 is the number, the email address forum at kqed.org, or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And the Chief Justice, we have this comment from a listener who writes, how does the Chief Justice feel about private mediation services? I've heard from friends that they've had to hire private mediators for divorces because the courts are clogged. And just generally, what does it mean when we have private mediators instead of going to our courts? Is that real justice? What do you think? Thank you. I think that's a very astute question. And certainly in the years that I have been a jurist, we have seen a rise in the use of private mediation services. And for people who may not know what that means, it's that there are organizations out there that uh, rely on retired judges or uh, attorneys who are experienced or have actively retired retired from the active uh, participation in their law firm to act as mediators. And that is avoiding court and going to a mediation. It could be in a lawyer's office. It could be in another office where the parties, both sides, present uh, briefs and arguments to a neutral, a mediator, who will try to settle the case short of going to trial. And mediation is not necessarily, it's not binding, but it is um, an where you have a neutral, take a look at the strengths and weaknesses of each side's case or brief or issue, and then decide or try to get some kind of settlement so the parties can avoid court. Mediation has grown to be a very uh, active uh, task and active engagement by many, many people, partly because as you point out, people seek to avoid court because courts can take a long time because courts are open to the public and therefore the public has access and courts are open on a kind of a first come first serve basis. And depending on how complicated your case may be, it may take some time. Also courts are uh, open to, uh, you get what you get in a court in terms of I say that you can't pick your mediator in court. You don't pick a judge in court. You get assigned to the judge and the judge sets the time and date for when you will return and this case will be heard. In private mediation, there's far more freedom for the parties to select the mediator, for the parties to select the time and place. And mediation is also confidential. And the settlement or the result of the mediation is often confidential. And so you can understand why a lot of parties might want to choose this route. Mediation may be faster. Mediation may give the parties the kind of uh, settlement or contentment or closure to a case that a court may not necessarily be able to give. And so mediation has become something that is quite popular, not only in California, but the United States and the world. Uh, in, uh, so in this regard, people choose it. And sometimes courts, when they are busy with the case, particularly a civil case in a big jurisdiction, they might refer a case out to mediation to see if it'll settle or to um, address some legal issue that the court thinks maybe can be handled outside of the courtroom and come back to the court once that issue is settled. So 
I happen to think that mediation when used uh, appropriately is a good thing and that mediation brings people a lot of satisfaction. Do I think that all cases should go to mediation? I don't. I think that where there might be public policy or might involve large companies with multiple recurring plaintiffs, it might be wise to take that to a court and get a rule of law that could be applicable going forward for not only that plaintiff, but any mm. future plaintiffs. In terms of mediation, I've heard is lamented because we're seeing a slower development of the rule of law. If cases are not going through the court system, i.e. the superior court, then chances are they're not going up on appeal. And if they're not going up on appeal, the public isn't reading about it. The public doesn't have access to it. And we're not creating, clarifying, and growing the rule of law. Now, admittedly, some uh, issues and some organizations would prefer we not grow the rule of law in their area. And mediation might provide that opportunity for them to uh, slow roll the development of the rule of law. Hmm. Why some do feel concerns that the system may not deliver just out outcomes, as you say, all the time, of course. Uh, but let me go to Natalie in Pleasanton, who would like to comment. Natalie, you're on. Hi, thanks for taking my call. First of all, I'm a fellow King Hall grad, so yay. Wonderful <laughs> to talk to you, Honor. Um, I worked for Yolo County Court during the worst of the pandemic as the small claims court advisor, helping people, parties that are part of small claims, whether they're plaintiffs or defendants. And fairly seamlessly, the Yolo County Court was able to switch over to video appearances, which, boy, the parties really appreciated. And I'm hoping they'll be able to continue making that access available because that size county, it's very difficult for parties to get to the one courthouse in the entire county. And this really helped the judges learn how to use video really well. And I'm just glad it was made available to the parties. Well, Natalie, thanks so much for saying that. And I wonder, Chief Justice, does this mean you see a hybrid future for the courts where it'll be a combination of remote appearances, trials conducted remotely as well as in person? Oh, most definitely. And, and the reason for so is because of the good work of people like Natalie. Under pr immense pressure and a lot of uh, stress, uh, she, she, her court, YOLO, really rose to the occasion and they created a lot of early online appearances and they were a leader in this way. And with 57 other trial court or counties, Every county did it differently, and YOLO shared their expertise and shared their programs with others so that people who might not have had a similar program or who were struggling were able to learn from YOLO's uh, experience and expertise and leadership. And also, I will just point, small claims is exactly the area where uh, the courts are able to help people who don't have attorneys. So, and these are often near and dear issues, like things that are happening with the, with your home or with your yard or with your dog. Things that affect people's quality of lives most directly are handled in small claims. And they're courts that are teeming with people, teeming with people. I sat small claims maybe, <laughs> uh, gosh, 30 years ago, and I don't think it's let up. And a lot of money is involved in small claims also, surprisingly, because the level of jurisdiction has gone up. So yes, we're, we've collected the best practices of remote technology and we brought it to the legislature and the legislature has 
approved our use of remote technology in certain areas. We have to report back to the legislature about the user's experience, how we can improve. Are we losing rights or, and what, what's happening along the way? But we are fully supportive of remote access because just as Natalie said, many counties have only one courthouse and it takes an hour or longer to drive there, to pay for parking, the cost of gas, to pay for childcare while you have to go to court. And it would be so much easier to access the court, your choice, from your yeah. kitchen table on a device. I've also been struck by how crime victims have appreciated not having to be in the same room as their assailants yeah. or domestic mm-hmm. violence survivors with their abusers as well. Yes. And children in family court prefer so much not to be in sort of a big, dark, scary courtroom and to be at their kitchen table with their dog at their foot to be able to explain to the court what's bothering them. Well, Michael asks, what were the most memorable cases the Chief Justice saw, meaning the ones with the biggest impact or touched her in some way? Ah, thank you, Michael. Well, I have to say, at the Supreme Court, cases are memorable to me. All of them are, if if someone were to just remind me of which one that they were talking about, in the sense that the Supreme Court only has cases primarily that are conflicted, um, difficult to resolve because there are lots of reasonable approaches to it. But the state of California needs one approach, one rule of law. And the Supreme Court of California doesn't take a case usually unless there's a conflict in the lower courts as to what the rule of law is. And so when we take the case, there's many reasonable approaches to how the court would resolve it. But we take into and have the benefit of seven minds, seven jurists, seven chambers with all of their various talented staff to try to get to the right answer. I think the most memorable ones for me are um, when the court, uh, I I say that only because what's most memorable to me, and I don't mean this in any any particular way, but are the ones I authored, because those are the ones that I lived with so, so closely. And all Supreme Court cases are authored by one justice, but the truth is, is that all seven, all seven contribute mightily to the ultimate file decision because they're editing, they're signing, and their attorneys are doing the same thing. So it's always a group product, but one justice has to author it. So I think early on in my uh, my uh, time as chief justice, memorable to me was the first time, where, like it felt like it was in the first week, uh, we received a, uh, a petition regarding Prop 8, uh, same-sex marriage. And the question for us was early on, could the when the when the when the governor and the attorney general decline to defend Prop 8, who what party has standing to defend uh, it, the proponents of the ballot measure? And so that was one of the first cases that was assigned to my chamber. We worked through it and said, when there is an initiative and there is no party to defend it, when the governor declines, when the attorney general declines to defend a law on the books, then we said that the proponents of the initiative have the right to stand in and defend what they supported and what they probably authored and paid for as an initiative. Ultimately, we were reversed by the United States Supreme Court. It wasn't a unanimous opinion, but we were reversed on that. That stands out for me. Also early in my administration, I authored the case regarding uh, Mr. Sergio Garcia, at the time, an undocumented immigrant who'd been in this country since he was a child, but for some reason, his paperwork had not been processed yet by the federal government. And he had, at this point, 
uh, went to law school, passed the bar exam, passed all of the requirements to become a lawyer, except that he was not a citizen. And the question before us, the California Supreme Court was, can he practice law? Can he be licensed? It was a pretty narrow question. Can he be licensed? And uh, we spent a lot of time with that and decided that yes, he could be licensed. While there were consequences perhaps to actual practice, the threshold question was, can he be licensed? Yes, he can. And it does not depend on his, uh, his, his documented status. So we've had those kinds of cases in addition to environmental cases and bail cases and automatic appeal or capital death penalty cases. And I think what stands out for me most, though, Michael, is that I work with a great group of people who, despite our differences uh, and our, our, our points of view and our cultural backgrounds and our education and our ages, uh, we work so well together in how we approach problems. We're talking with Chief Justice Tani Cantil Saka-Uwe, Chief Justice of California, and you, our listeners, are as well with your questions for her about our court system, um, and you can continue to do so by calling 866-733-6786, by emailing forum at kqed.org, or posting at KQED Forum on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter as well. Chief Justice... Your court has been called a, quote, consensus court because nearly 90 percent of its cases have been decided unanimously. And you've been credited with that, which stands in stark contrast to our U.S. Supreme Court. It's it's a place where it feels like it's hard not to see political affiliation more than ever determining judicial outcomes. What are your thoughts on partisanship at the Supreme Court? U.S. Supreme oh. Court. Well, what you were US, witnessing there, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I, I, I know that uh, what I'm witnessing, of course, is what everyone else is witnessing. I don't have any inside information. And I think appearances uh, can not necessarily tell the entire truth about how a court is, in fact, engaging within itself. And while we've seen high-profile cases at the United States Supreme Court, and we've seen what appears to be a now- pretty, uh, I mean, a, a, a pretty political divide. I try not to look at the politics of jurists. I know that that's probably hard for some folks to, uh, to see, but at least at the state level, which is only my experience, uh, I, 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 the political party is never an issue. It's not even discussed. And I'm not even sure exactly what my colleagues' political party is or are. And, and I don't believe that at least uh, Governor Brown or Governor Schwarzenegger uh, the governors of late, or even Newsom, necessarily only only a, a name to court people of their affiliation. I say that because my experience in state court is politics has nothing to do because we follow the rule of law and we write out our decision. But the United States Supreme Court is different because they're federal appointments, and so by handling high-profile national life-changing matters, at the United States Supreme Court, uh, we can uh, they don't go ways that we think that they ought to. Uh, it can become personal and we can become to try to label or categorize the behavior there. I think we have to take a bit of a wait and see, but I agree with the narrative that is forming that it is troubling to watch and it calls into question uh, the impartiality of the judicial system, uh, a system that survives on public trust and public confidence and a yeah. life and lifetime appointments on the federal side. So I think it's it's too early to say anything categorically, but it is troubling and it concerns jurists not only at the federal level, but at the state level as well. We are concerned also. 
I was struck, Chief Justice, when you publicly announced that you were dropping your Republican Party affiliation in 2018. And struck because as you talk about how party affiliation is not important, why you chose to publicly do it uh, when there's such a countervailing effort often to appear nonpartisan and so on. Thank you. I, I, so I did change in 2018. Of course, I'd been pondering and it wasn't a snap decision. But when I did change my party affiliation, I did not publicly announce it. Oh, I, I, I went to my PIO and I said, you have to change my biography. Uh, it currently says Republican, but I am now no party preference. And he said, do, do you want to do or say anything about that? And I said, no, I don't think it really matters. I don't want to make a big fuss about it. I just think that it's not accurate. And so my people, wherever I speak, they ask for a bio and it should be accurate. So he had it changed. And for months, it seemed that no one noticed. And then a newspaper article or a journalist called about it and it became public. But I say that I, I think there are a lot of folks out there that I have talked to quietly uh, who have changed their uh, party preference. And it hasn't become as known as mine, of course, because of just being the chief justice of California puts you in spotlights that otherwise don't apply to other jurists. So I, I did change it and I had been thinking about it because as I said earlier, Democrat or Republican, independent, no party preference, never surfaces as anything that defines how a jurist performs his or her duties, at least at the state level, in my experience, in the 32 years I've worn a black robe. Hmm. Well, I appreciate the correction. It was suggested that it was concerns about the GOP after the U.S. Senate hearings of Brett Kavanaugh. We're coming up on a break, but is that also inaccurate? No, no, that's that's when I did it. And that is when I decided to do it. And it was those hearings that made me say I need to take my action today. What about those hearings? It was watching them, watching them with two adult daughters who were old enough to uh, see it and understand it and under the understand the import of it. I was riveted by the hearing, like most of America. I've been traveling and I was traveling and I remember having ear, earbuds in and moving through the airport and just trying to find a quiet place to hear it and then watching it when I could on, uh, on some kind of screen. And I was just struck by how much it reminded me of the days when I first started as a prosecutor, when I was the only female and likely only minority in the courtroom. We'll finish and that thought right after this break, Chief Justice. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim, and we're joined by California's Chief Justice Tani Kentil Sakauwe. And Chief Justice Kentil Sakauwe, I'm sorry we were interrupted by the break there, but just before it, you were saying that watching and listening to those U.S. Senate hearings for Brett Kavanaugh, that you were reminded of your days as a prosecutor and as a minority in the courtroom. How so? Yes, well, I was a trial attorney, a prosecutor from 1984 to about 1988. And in those days, there weren't a lot of, well, there were almost no female jurists. There were a few. So most of the justices or jurists, judges that I appeared before were men and they were male and they were accomplished. And they also weren't quite used to seeing me in a courtroom. I was often, um, well, the only female or always almost the only female of color, a minority female. And I was trying cases in front of juries. And, and honestly, I felt better or worse, true or otherwise, but my feelings, that there was a, there was an odd interaction between myself and uh, the trial judge. And it was always overcoming and being new and having to prove myself. And so watching the Kavanaugh hearings and seeing that, this, that the employment of a female interlocutor, because the, uh, the senators for some reason could not directly ask Dr. Casey a question, just felt to me that what is this process? How can we condone a process that, like this exactly? I didn't understand it. And I, I felt that it was for me alienating. And I, as I said earlier, I have two adult daughters and they were watching and listening and trying to figure it out and hearing those allegations and wondering and asking me, had they been investigated? Had it thoroughly been investigated? Because they grew up in a family where my husband is a retired police lieutenant. Uh, their mother's been a judge of some sort throughout their entire life. And there was a feeling that this just wasn't appropriately handled, or it left a feeling of, uh, in my view, that I needed to change. And I did, and uh, did so quietly because I didn't want to make a big deal of it at the time. And, and a friend of mine said to me, uh, when I told him that I had left the Republican Party, uh, he said to me, then, and I think about it now. And he said, you didn't leave the Republican Party. They left you. And I thought that was, that was a, that was a right answer. And I'm, I'm still trying to unpack that. <laughs> um, well, in hearing you talk about your experiences as well, uh, your experiences early on, of course, you are the first person of color to serve as, as chief justice, the second woman, first Asian American. You're the daughter of farm workers, uh, as, has often been said about your background. Um, and so uh, the person who has been named to to succeed you, San Diego Appeals Court Justice Patricia Guerrero, she will be the first Latina American appointed to the California Supreme Court. First, what is your reaction to the naming of Patricia Guerrero as California Supreme Court Justice? Well, I am smiling because I'm thrilled. Um, she is an incredible jurist and has been in her years at the trial court and the Court of Appeal. And of course, she's been with the Supreme Court uh, before she was named as uh, chief by Governor Newsom by for approximately five months. And in those months, we've been able to I've been able to get to know her on another level, the kind of level that you have with people you work closely with and exchange intellectual arguments and discussions. And her background is truly the story of, of books and myths, her family, her father, the cowboys, the hard work, the work ethic, 
her family. Uh, she grew up in the Imperial Valley. And so my view is she brings a host of, of culture and skill. And she's a, a female who has succeeded on the civil side of law in, in big firm, in a big firm. And she rose to starship, starship in that big firm early on and a leadership position in that civil firm early on. And she's only continued to climb mountains and reach the top. So I'm excited and I'm, I'm grateful for the time we have together because we talk a little bit about this work as she transitions. Well, this listener asks, what recourse do you have if you feel a judge on your case is unfair or biased for the other side? It can feel so hopeless when every ruling seems to go against you and the judge seems unprepared. Is there any way to get a different judge? Thank you. And I'm sorry to hear that you may have had that experience or someone you know has had that experience because when you're in court, it matters. No one goes to court of their own volition for fun. So your, your recourse really is uh, several fold. One of the ways is to make a record, to have a court reporter or an electronic recording that has you civilly and respectfully, but persistently objecting to the rulings and explaining and putting them in context of other rulings and also putting forward on the record why you think you're treating, being treated unfairly to elicit a response from the jurist so that there'll be a record of what transpired. Because if you later bring a claim of, of bias on appeal or you to complain against the Commission on Judicial Performance, and I'll talk about that in a minute, about the jurist, or you complain to the presiding judge of, of that court about that particular jurist, it would be helpful to have a record in order to be able to point to facts that reflect the interchange you had with that particular jurist. And calling out, if you think so, that you're being treated unfairly or that there is bias or that a ruling is uh, needs to be explained more because it appears to be unfair or inaccurate. Or even if you should ask respectfully that um, maybe the jurist doesn't understand and would, would like more opportunity to provide supplemental briefing to prepare the jurist without being antagonistic, making sure you're making a record because a record will be examined. Um, and I, as I said, there is recourse after the hearing, and that is, or the trial, and that is the appellate process or the writ process, um, and also through the Commission on Judicial Performance, which is a independent body from the judiciary, even though it has the word judicial in it. They are a multi-member organization from, uh, that has power from the Constitution the, the organization is, uh, the, the commission is made up primarily, supermajority are lay people, not jurists, specifically not jurists. And they examine complaints that people make and bring against a judge. And thereafter, uh, if they find sufficient evidence that the complainant will bring, they begin initial, they begin proceedings against the jurist for either punishment or removal from the bench if the behavior is egregious that it calls for that. And the jurist at that point often hires defense counsel and the matter can go to a hearing that looks like a bench trial or a court trial. And then the jurist has an opportunity on appeal to bring it to the Supreme Court, my court, and to decide uh, to overlook and determine whether or not the proceedings below were fair and whether or not the punishment the justice received or the jurist received was fair. So there is a bit of a, there is a process there 
um, not entirely, I think, one that um, that is immediately gratifying. But again, um, that's mm -hmm. when the court system, things take a little time, but you need a record of the facts in order to pursue those kinds of claims. Do you think that process needs reform? I know they're looking at the reform now. There is an audit of the Commission on Judicial Performance. But let me also say, too, that there are built-in uh, processes in the court system to ask for a judge to reconsider. There's a motion to reconsider a hearing or a decision, a motion for a new trial, uh, to go up on the appellate process and to, and to indicate where the trial judge made a mistake and, and write that out for the appellate court. Um, so could it be improved? Always, always it can be improved. And we're, I think we're working on that now through the audit of the Commission on Judicial Performance, but it's a separate body from what we do. Let me also say at the judicial branch in California, we engage in extensive training judges for subject matter that they've never encountered based on evidence, uh, civil law, family law, probate law. We do extensive education. We also have what we call new judges orientation. When a lawyer becomes a judge, we spend at least a live-in a week where they eight hours a day learn the processes and learn the ethics and learn the research materials. And then we also have what we call judges college, which is required for every judge before they complete two years of service on the bench. They must go to Judges College, which is a two-week live-in college that teaches the finer points of law and behavior, ethics, and canons. And then we have continuing education, and we have a require anytime a judge changes assignment, say goes from criminal law to probate, we require education for the probate program so that no judge goes in uh, without knowledge or access to research and access to resources to help him or her answer the questions before them. Hmm. What would you say is still the top challenge facing state courts right now that your successor will have to address? Well, of course, our top challenge, which will always be an issue, is our budget. It is true, as alluded to earlier in our conversation, this last year, this fiscal year, we were able to bring in the highest judicial branch budget in our history. And Governor Newsom and the legislature gave us a, a lot of ongoing base funding to ensure that we could uh, fortify programs that serve uh, the vulnerable and the poor and those without attorneys. But our budget of the judicial branch it's solely dependent on the state budget. Unlike K through 12 education, we don't get a guaranteed portion of the pie. And so, like I said earlier, we can't control our caseload. What comes in, comes in, depending on how people are faring in California. Yes. And the judiciary, you know, the legislature and the governor pass 5,000 bills a year. That's new law. New law comes in every year. <laughs> and then the initiatives come in every 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 four years and their new law and the judicial branch just accepts it we just take it whatever the weight we bear it so the budget's always going to be an issue and our new chief is going to have to really grapple not in this fiscal year but in fiscal year probably 23 24 a shrinking budget right we know budget revenue forecasts are coming in lower than expected we're seeing the stock market volatility we're seeing the needs of uh, those who are home challenged, 
uh, education. We're seeing other needs that are equally important, but even if you don't have your education needs met or your home needs met, whatever it is, you come to court. We're a branch of government. We're not a societal ill uh, that can be cured. We need the sustained funding in order to be open to administer all of the justice that this state promises. And whenever the budget goes down, we are threatened. We're talking with Chief Justice of California, Tani Kentiel Saka Uwe. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Joseph writes, I'm trying to be an effective advocate for my son, who is toggly between criminal court and mental health court. He has a series of low-level misdemeanors over his bipolar manic behavior the last five years. Can the Chief Justice clarify for me the best forum for him? Thank you, Joseph, and I appreciate your advocacy and your concern, and and I understand how difficult it is in the sense that um, the criminal justice system is not uh, an adequate response to someone who has the illness of your son, and the uh, health system also is not exactly the wraparound kind of service uh, that fills all the gaps. And what you have identified, as you may already know, has been something that has been a great challenge to the legal system because so many folks in our system uh, have some kind of illness or mental health or disorder that uh, could be treated, should be treated as soon as possible to improve the quality of their life and maybe avoid our court altogether. Um, I think that if you find yourself in criminal court, then the best avenue is to seek all of the uh, medical alternatives, the medical diversions, the mental diversions, the health programs, the mental health court. Our court system, as I have said, are becoming social justice centers where we see people in crisis who commit crimes that are not necessarily of their free will or wouldn't do were they uh, properly or appropriately uh, care took or medicated. So we have responded by creating a series of mental health courts throughout the state as well as veterans courts and homeless courts. But, and again, they offer services. Uh, and the, the, the trigger that gets you into a court of that kind of nature is some kind of criminal charge that then gives the court jurisdiction or the ability to order services that can be caretaking, that can uh, address the health issues of a person. Without a criminal conviction, the court really has no way to act unless you go to a civil court and the civil court proceeds and, the, and uses one of the caretaking acts to order service. I don't know if you're aware, you should be, I'm sure, you might've heard about it, but the Governor Newsom signed into law the CARE Court program, which is addressed toward homelessness, but a population of particularly of, of people who suffer from bi bipolar challenges. And the CARE Court, is an acronym, and I can't tell you, community, it's a caretaking court of some sort. It brings in a court, a, a, brings in a patient or a, a person into the court, and the court can provide housing, medical care with oversight and an attorney and a support person. We're gonna pilot the care courts. That means try them out in eight jurisdictions, I believe, seven or eight jurisdictions. And the governor has pledged funding because program like this will need wraparound services and a safety net. And he and the legislature have promised funding at all levels to support this population. And it's not a criminal court, it's a civil court. So uh, under Chief Justice Guerrero, once she's elected in November, 
this is, as I have said, will be probably one of the main focal points of the, of the judicial branch going forward is making sure this system works so that we can grow it to include others who find themselves caught between a world of criminal justice and healthcare. Listening to you talk, you have been, you have been in the justice system. I mean, you've been working as a, as a, a an attorney, as a judge, decades now. Uh, you've been working with our state government, the legislature. What are you going to miss most? You, you, you're not going to go into politics. You're, you're not going to be a judge any longer. Um, this is a big big change for you. What do you think you will miss most? How are you approaching that? Thank you, Mina. I I realize it is a big step. All of my adult life and all of my, a lot of my education has been aimed at becoming a lawyer and being a judge. And it's going to be a huge change for me. But I think that I will continue to stay interested in the law. And I continue, will, will continue to watch it grow and and be interested in it. And at the Public Policy Institute of California in 2023, where, where I will become president and CEO, and given the subject matter and focus of PPIC, I think I'll still be able to watch the policy grow and amplify it and clarify it, particularly in the areas of the safety net and the environment uh, and criminal justice reform, and also be able to maybe guide it uh, and in a way that I think I can still use my analytical skills and still use my my service skills about social justice to help make policies work in California. As I said, for PPIC, California leads in policy. And so I am really excited about being at a place where I can be involved in that policy to clarify and amplify and guide in an independent, nonpartisan way. And so I think going to PPIC, will help me get over my withdrawal pains from leaving the judiciary. <laughs> well, uh, Chief Justice Kantil Saka-Uwe, thanks so much for talking with us and, and with our listeners. Thank you so much, Mina. Thank you for your good work and your great program. <laughs> and I should thank Susie Britton, who produced today's segment, and of course, our listeners for weighing in with their questions and comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.